welcome to Oncology of the Inquisitive Mind, also known as Inquisitive Onc, the podcast that pushes the boundaries of medicine, podcasting, and terrible jokes. Today, I have the extreme pleasure of being accompanied by my good friend, a novice novelist, a father to an adorable dog, and of course, the oncology trainee extraordinaire, the Dr. Michael Fernando. Michael gave me free reign to introduce today, and I'm so very excited to introduce our topic today, which is gastric cancer and esophageal cancer. And I'll never give you that free reign again, Josh. I'm joking. That was a that was a great introduction. How are you doing? I am doing very well, thank you, Mikey. And we managed to get to the actual topic within like thirty seconds, so I think that's a pretty good start. That's a record, although it doesn't beat my Richard Nixon come Spock impersonation from a few weeks ago. But I understand this is a what have you done late me, lately for me uh, type of podcast, and so I might just have to give you the introduction uh, job full time. You never know. Maybe. I mean, it, it was probably a lot easier for me to write mine than for you to uh, research yours. <laughs> Yes, I, I put a lot of effort into it. Anyway, our 30 second intro is ballooning out into a minute. So why don't, why, why don't uh, you take us uh, into the beginnings of our uh, topic for today, um, which is gastric cancer and esophageal cancer. We've got a we've got a double header for you. It's like those double headers on, I don't know, Channel 7 on Saturday night. Anyway. Josh, please introduce gastric cancer for us before this podcast goes off the rails again. I will. And just for international listeners, Channel 7 is one of the local Australian TV channels. Most people don't really watch free to air anymore, so you don't have to remember that fact. But going on, <laughs> no. that, that'll, be, that'll be in oncology exit exams across the world. We'll, will we, be. <laughs> we will covertly insert it. What is Channel 7? Amazing. Um, gastric cancer. So this is an interesting topic. And the reason for that is that its incidence varies between different geographic regions and societies. Known highest to be in East Asia, Central Asia, South America, and Eastern Europe, with the lowest incidence have been found in Africa and North America. About 55% of the global burden of cancer in 2012 was related to six types of cancers. Mikey, do you know those six types? Of gastric cancer? No, no, just cancers in general. Oh, we're pulling the lens right back. Okay. Breast cancer? Yep. Lung cancer? Yep. <laughs> had, to, had to click through that, didn't you? <laughs> melanoma? Well, no. I mean, melanoma is really high incidence in Australia, probably not globally. I'm, I'm showing my Australian bias there. You are. Um, colorectal cancer? Yep. Prostate cancer? Well, maybe now because it's 10 years since this start, this data came out, but we're going to say potentially. All right. All right. So it, six, potentially seven. Yeah. So the other two are gastric and liver cancers. I figured I figured I was going to lead up to gastric cancer as, as part of your build up to the topic. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, so a very pertinent cancer is what you're trying to say. Very pertinent. So of them, gastric cancer was the most common type of upper GI cancer. Within gastric adenocarcinoma, there are two main histologic subtypes, and these include intestinal type, which is generally a similar histology from the GI tract, and the less common diffuse type. The second types are characterized, so, so the diffuse type is characterized by the lack of intracellular and intercellular adhesions, leaving them unable to form glandular structures. 
the absence of these adhesions is due to the germline mutation in cell adhesion protein E cadherin. And Mikey, I'm sure you've seen it on those histopathology reports. They always look at E cadherin. Yeah, that's very true. Um, to be honest, though, uh, I, I don't even pretend to understand most of what our pathology colleagues write in those histopathology reports. Far too complex and detailed for me, but I have definitely seen E cadherin. In, in those reports for gastric cancer. What Michael is saying is that he actually knows it all and he's just trying to be really nice. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was the opposite of that, but uh, I'll, take the, I'll take credit for it. Then. Amazing. So one systematic review found that there were 52 different risk factors that for gastric cancer that can be classified into about seven or eight subtypes. So that's lifestyle, diet, genetic predisposition, family history, treatment and medical conditions, infections, demographic. Okay, there's far more than seven here. Occupational exposures and ionizing radiation. Of those, the most important is actually H. pylori and a family history of gastric cancer. While digging further into these risk factors, because they're so broad, that could be absolutely anything. When you look at diet, think of high salt and salt-preserving foods. Other factors include obesity, smoking, surprise, surprise there, that's everything. Um, Mining, such as those that mine coal and tin and are exposed to that. Metal processing, rubber manufacturing, alcohol, people from low socioeconomic status, and also prior gastric surgery. You can really see how the demographic data and the epidemiological data marries up with the risk factors there, can't you? I mean, low SES, uh, mineral and rubber manufacturing and refining and those sorts of occupations, smoking, obesity. If you overlaid one map of the risk factors and one map of the demographic of gastric cancer, I'm imagining there'd be a fairly close match. 100%. And if you look even places where are probably very high in their resources, so when I say like mineral resources like America, they probably have very good protection for their their miners, Australia, uh, you know, these places protect their miners, whereas the low SES might not as much and would definitely not have the, the same protective equipment that unfortunately the, I guess the Western world or the, you know, the more developed countries do. Another thing is that screening is not widely performed, except in countries that have very high incidences. So this includes Japan, Korea, Venezuela, and Chile. I thought that was cool. Clinical features are pretty hard to know, and thus people generally present with advanced disease. This is in about 50% of patients um, that will have disease that extend beyond local regional confines of presentation, and only half of those who have local regional tumour control can actually undergo curative resection. So that's a quarter of patients with the cancer can actually potentially undergo resection. Of the total cohort, about 25% of patients will have a history of gastric ulcer. So that's interesting. And other symptoms they might experience, you know, general stuff. So weight loss, dysphagia, nausea, early satiety. So feeling full, they might have a bloated abdomen from ascites, enlarged ovaries, such as a Krukenberg tumor, which you can get. This is a long intro, isn't it? <laughs> you've, you've used up all of the time you, um, uh, you gained from uh, lacking a very flowery historical introduction, Josh. Yeah, well, they, they might actually remember something. Probably more relevant, though, yeah. I'm hoping so. Um, when gastric cancer is treated before spreading beyond the stomach, the survival rate, five-year survival rate, is great at 70%. But once it spreads, this drops to about 30%, right? So already a big problem because most people present with locally advanced. One of the largest studies that looked at 
perioperative chemotherapy was actually the magic study. We're not going to talk about that in too much detail today, but for those who are interested in reading, it's the Medical Research Council Adjuvant Infusional Chemotherapy Study. Although I did have a a very senior GI oncologist once tell me in no uncertain terms that magic was dead in terms of its practical applicability. Look, it is dead, but this is a, this trial literally came from magic, right? Because that's the reason they did this trial. Um, so I wanted to give a preamble about. So if you're looking, if you're looking at a at a developmental uh, genealogy of the trial that Josh is going to be talking about, talk uh, look at magic first. That's it. So five hundred odd patients with a local advanced resectable esophagus. Go gastric adenocarcinoma treated with three cycles of epirubicin, cisplatin, and fluorouracil. This was administered before surgery and after surgery or surgery alone. Hello, hello, this is literally, you know, the trial, right? The results of the magic showed that the overall survival was higher in those who had the chemotherapy. Unfortunately, it's still nowhere near where we want. So I'm talking about the five-year survival was 36% versus 23% for this. So now we can talk about FLOT. Finally, say most of our listeners. This trial, I'm just going to, it's a big trial name, but I'm going to call it the FLOT trial for abbreviation purposes. It's the perioperative chemotherapy with fluorouracil plus leucovorin, oxaliplatin, and docetaxel versus the incumbent, the old incumbent, which is fluorouracil or capecitabine plus cisplatin and epirubicin for locally advanced resectable gastric or GOJ adenocarcinoma. And this was a randomized phase two slash three trial. The interesting thing about your surgeon, oh, sorry, not your surgeon, your oncologist, Michael, who said that, you know, the magic trial and EPC, ECF is dead, is that this trial was only published in 2019. So it's not that long ago. Well, I guess no matter how recently a trial is dead, that doesn't change the fact that it is dead. dead. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to call this the FLOT trial. So what, what did they know about the chemotherapy agents? So docetaxel, it's a taxane. It was already known to be very effective in the metastatic setting for gastric cancer versus both first and second line. They knew that DCF, which is docetaxel, cisplatin, and fluorouracil, had a really high toxicity and a modified regimen used only every two weeks using oxali versus cisplatin was instated to reduce toxicity. So summary of that, very toxic regimen. They've been making changes to try and make it less toxic. There had been a number of phase two studies, so small trials that showed that the FLOT regimen in the metastatic and locally advanced gastric and GOJ cancer was more tolerable than DCF, which is, I'm, I'm not going to explain the, the phrases every time because it's going to take too long. And we can, we can edit that um, and induce more tumor response in the locally advanced resectable tumors. Thus, the trial came into fruition. So to summarize the last five minutes of me yakking, the, the known regimens at the time were really toxic. They improved survival, but they were looking for something better, which is what we try and do every time on this podcast, which pushes the boundary of oncology. And thus the trial was born. <laughs> All right. So the method, this was a randomized, unmasked, controlled trial. The inclusion criteria, so we wanted it to be locally advanced, which means you had to have at least a stage CT2 or higher with node positive disease or both. So either one or the other or both um, and no clinical evidence of distant metastatic disease. 
Okay. The endpoints, which is interesting and something we can talk either now or at the end, Michael, the primary endpoint was initially disease-free survival, but this was changed to overall survival upon a request of the independent review, right? Do you see that happen often? Not frequently. Um, I think mm. that it's you see a real dichotomy with primary endpoints, and I think we've mentioned this in the show previously, is that if you're dealing with a cancer where the outcomes are extraordinarily good, breast cancer, melanoma, prostate cancer, the overall survival as a primary endpoint is not something that you see because in order to get final analysis, you're going to have to wait years, if not decades, for some of these cancers. Um, I suspect that the other thing as well is that we've seen and I think, again, we've mentioned this, that disease-free survival, uh, a benefit in disease-free survival does not necessarily correlate to a benefit in overall survival. And so overall survival is what we always want. It is the gold standard endpoint. And I think it's actually very good that this shady, backroom, independent evaluator uh, actually asked for that to be changed because I think... Overall, you're going to get a higher quality study looking at overall survival as opposed to DFS. I don't know how shady they were. It was the German Cancer Aid, probably, society. So shady. (laughs) Just so shady. Okay, so people were randomised to either ECF or ECX. So that was the epirubicin with either fluorouracil or capecitabine. That's what the X stands for. And there was lots of stratification that went on, including their their performance status, their known status, their age, what type of gastroesophageal type they were. And there were about 700 odd patients that underwent randomization. So the incumbent, the incumbent chemotherapy regimen of ECF was administered every three weeks. And the new frontier, you know, perioperative chemo flot was given every two weeks. I don't think I've ever seen incumbent used to describe a chemo regimen. But, but it's true, right? Everything is an incumbent until something new comes along. And then they're like, is this going to be a better option? It's true. It's just, uh, it's just a, a very strange way of saying standard of care. Standard of care, the incumbent. Incumbent right. standard of care. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Um, so they had, they had their, their treatment for FLOT. They had four cycles. They were then given surgery about four weeks post their last cycle of chemo. And that is still true today, at least in Australia. And I suspect also internationally um, that you would have a short time frame from completion of chemotherapy to surgery. Otherwise, you might lose all that benefit. The median age was generally in the 60s for both groups. And those under 60 was 44%. Those sort of between above 60 was about sort of 50%, give or take. Men, definitely a predominance here, 75% in each cohort of patients. And ECOG performance status, most are pretty good. So 70% in about both was zero and 29 to 31% had an ECOG of one. When looking at the tumor stage, I'm just going to talk about the T-score here. Most had a T3, so 70 to 75% had a T3, so pretty large tumors here, and 80% in almost both cohorts had node positive. This goes back to that initial fact I was telling everyone that a lot of people present with locally advanced disease. Which, from a trial perspective, is good. I mean, you're not selecting patients that are T1 or or very small tumours, you are selecting the higher risk of recurrence, higher risk of progression patients who you're going to see a benefit from. 
Exactly. And although this was the inclusion criteria of locally advanced, given that most people were T3 rather than T2 actually diagnosed at a later stage. Other things to note, 28% of patients had signet cells. Mikey, do you know the, uh, the implication of having signet cell rings on your uh, histology? We're going to talk a bit about histology, which you and I both love so very much. The implication is bad, is my memory. Correct. Bad. <laughs> so it's a rare disease entity often characterized by early age of the onset and sometimes heritable genetic mutations, poor prognosis um, due to diagnosis at late stage. And the other thing is the difference between diffuse type histology and those with intestinal subtype, uh, histology subtypes. The intestinal did better than the diffuse, just to remember that if you're, if you're looking again at histology. Of the patients, 37% of patients in the ECF group and 46% of the patients in the FLOT group completed all allocated cycles. The most common reason for discontinuation of the chemotherapy was disease progression, lack of efficacy, or death in 21% of the ECF group and 13% of the FLOT group. Remember that. So this is already showing that FLOT. Mikey, any questions so far before I keep talking? Not particularly. I'm sure you'll get really deep into the toxicity data in a moment. Yeah, I'll talk, talk about lots and lots of fun things. If we, we keep moving on, we can then talk about a high proportion of stage YPT1 tumors were in the FLOT group than in the ECF group. So that, uh, talking about 25 versus 15%, which is statistically significant. Um, when we talk about YPT1, that means the tumor is less than two centimeters. And a high proportion of tumors had YPN0 in the FLOT group than the ECF group. So that's 49 versus 41% of patients. With respect to that primary outcome we were talking about, so median overall survival, so 35 months in the incumbent or standard of care, which is the ECF group, and 50 months to not reached in the FLOT group with a hazard ratio of 0.77. That's really good that it wasn't reached. They didn't reach the upper limit. Yeah, really good. And the estimated overall survival at two, three, and five year in the ECF group was 59, 48, and 36% versus 68, 57, and 45%. So if you look at that five-year mark, that's 36% in the ECF group and 45% in the FLOT group. So it's just better. It's just better. Uh, did disease-free survival, the hazard ratio is 0.75 as well. Toxicities. <laughs> the next part of my chat, there were toxicities in, in both cohorts of patients. Diarrhea, grade four toxic, grade three or grade four toxicities higher in the FLOT. So 10% of patients had grade three or four versus 4% in the ECF group. Of other notable things is emetogenesis was higher in the ECF group, about 20, 29% in grade one or two and 8% in grade three or four versus 32% plus two, so 34%, but, you know, still relatively close. Nausea was slightly high in the ECF group. And I think the summary of really all of the toxicities is that there were quite a few toxicities. Is there anything else, Mikey, we need to kind of really talk? I guess peripheral neuropathy is something to chat about, especially in the locally advanced, potentially curative patients. Grade one or grade two peripheral neuropathy was 34% in the ECF group and 64% in the um, flot arm. Which is a very flot arm. You are getting 
probably an overall higher exposure to the drug because it's perioperative, so pre- and post-operative. That is something that is very important to consider. As you said, these are patients that, practically speaking, we know probably have a better-than-even chance of not being cured in the long term, but at at the same time, we are looking at fairly good outcomes, fairly good chance to get to five years. And so you do have to temper your aggressiveness if they are starting to exhibit things such as peripheral neuropathy. The other thing as well, we talk about peripheral neuropathy really in two major classes of chemotherapy, the taxanes and the platinums. FLOT obviously has both a taxane, docetaxel, and a platinum oxaliplatin. So you are going to get significant peripheral neuropathy from that perspective. But at the same time, it is important to note that particularly with platinums, in this case oxaliplatin, the peripheral neuropathy has a greater chance of being permanent. So taxane neuropathy tends to resolve, stereotypically speaking, whereas oxaliplatin, you are much more likely to have much more permanent or uh, long-lasting damage to those peripheral nerve endings, which again should inform the clinical decision about whether to continue, whether to pause, whether whether to dose reduce, all of those things that we're confronted with almost on a day-to-day basis. Definitely. It's it's a day-to-day basis. And I think when you're an oncologist, you're not paid to give the chemotherapy. You're paid to manage the toxicities. So to summarize my discussion points regarding FLOT, it is far better than the prior treatment paradigm with fewer toxicities better outcome and enforces our belief when it comes to this perioperative reduction in the size of tumors to mop up anything that might be contributing to metastatic spread. The ongoing challenges with FLOT, or not FLOT itself, but with gastric and GOJ and even esophageal cancers is that detection doesn't come early and without early detection, it's much harder to cure these treatments. Now, that was my terrible segue into Mikey. And I guess we could also say maybe it's a crossroads, Michael, when we talk about this trial. Uh, Crossroads. I get it. (laughs) Not not so subtle, am I? Um, No, subtlety is not your middle name. But uh, although what was more subtle was your uh, call forward there to our next episode on advanced or unresectable uh, gastric and gastroesophageal cancers. Yes, that was, that, was, that was a plug. Definitely so you, a plug. You can, only, you can only have one subtle call forward per episode. That's that's in our constitution or something. We, we have a constitution now? <laughs> yes, I wrote it with all of my spare time. Anyway, um, so as Josh very subtly alluded to, um, the study for me for this week is called CROSS, and it is a crossroads of studies... <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's terrible well it's what you said um, yeah it just sounds so much worse coming from you well uh, now you can hear exactly what I have to put what I have to go through every episode I guess the main thing to uh, where cross slots in is for patients who aren't necessarily candidates for definitive surgery now anyone who has seen or taken care of a patient who is uh, post-gastrectomy or post-ivaluous esophagectomy will know that they are very, very morbid procedures. And uh, if you can do anything to either reduce the morbidity of the surgery pre-op or 
if uh, you are going to spare a already slightly frail patient the possibility of a, a surgery they might not tolerate, then that's always a good arrow to have in your quiver. So a bit of background on specifically esophageal cancer. Josh's talk about gastric with flot and uh, a little note as well that um, gastric, uh, the gastric flot regimen can also be used in esophageal cancer. There's some emerging data there. For CROSS, the focus was on esophageal cancer. So a bit of background on that. Esophageal cancer, at the time of the CROSS studies publication, in 2012-2015, uh, was responsible for around 400,000 deaths per year worldwide. And the highest rates are in Africa and East Asia and Greenland, of all places, Josh. I don't know why Greenland is, uh, is so high in the esophageal cancer sweepstakes. You took away my question, which was going to be, why Greenland? <laughs> why Greenland, yes. Um, the answer is, I don't know. Maybe no one knows. Anyway. Are there any predominance of risk factors that might sort of cross you know, geographical boundaries? Cross geographical boundaries? You're on fire today. <laughs> no, I'm not. Please don't encourage me. <laughs> um, the risk factors, uh, so they do differ. So the, the two main subtypes of esophageal cancer are adenocarcinoma and squamous cell. And for squamous cell, the main risk factors are smoking and alcohol. But for adenocarcinoma, where the predominant pathological driving force is metaplasia of the normal esophageal tissue, uh, Barrett's esophagus and uh, factors that lead up to or worsen Barrett's esophagus, such as obesity and smoking, are more significantly associated uh, with the development of esophageal adenocarcinoma. So I guess the breakdown is probably a little bit more subtle than just saying it's all esophageal cancer and it's all one type because you do have this divide. In terms of, but, but in terms of the actual percentages between those two, the incidence of adenocarcinoma has been rising now for a number of years and accounts for approximately 60% of all esophageal cancers. Mikey, I know we've gone past the risk factors, but I was, I was very curious, and I've done a little bit of Googling, everybody, and there's an interesting article from 2020. Um, if you go to PubMed Central, I'd recommend looking at the Greenland smoking rates, and they have one of the highest smoking rates at the age of 15. So what they've said, and I've lost a... Here we go. So... The descriptive full report from 2013-2014 shows that Greensland, Green, Greensland, Greenland, not Queensland, everybody. Not, qu not Queensland, no. Greenland has the highest prevalence of 15-year-olds who smoke at least once a week, which is 51%, which is more than four times the average of all the all the countries involved. Um, so that's really interesting. There are some other stats here. It shows that you know, 43% of adolescents reported smoke every day, which is crazy high. Very high. Must be because it's so cold. Maybe. Um, so, yeah, well, Josh has just answered the one burning question of this episode, which is why is esophageal cancer such a problem in Greenland, of all places? Mystery solved. Mystery solved. And the world can continue spinning. Um, so... We spoke briefly about the importance of early detection and early um, treatment with predominantly surgical techniques 
in order to prolong survival. But even patients who have surgery up front for esophageal cancer have quite poor outcomes in that 25% of patients have a microscopically positive resection margin, also known as an R1 resection, where there's some residual tumour left. And the five-year survival rate is 40%, which is fairly terrible for an early-stage cancer, especially given that in some other tumour streams we're getting five-year survival rates that high or higher for metastatic disease. Um, the likelihood of surviving five years, in according to a recent Australian statistics, is about 23%. And there's a strong male predominance, coming back to risk factors, Josh, maybe there's more men in Greenland, but it's... Uh, two to three times more likely to affect men than women, possibly because there's a correlation between the um, risk factors and being a man. So in terms of uh, the study design of CROSS, patients were aged 18 to 75, so unlike a lot of these studies, there is a... Yes, Josh, Josh is... Sorry, Josh. Josh has Googled something else again. I have, so in Greenland in 2021, uh, looking at the population ratio, it actually declined by 339 people. But what they did find is that there are predominantly more men than women in Greenland. So that's 1,126 males per 1,000 females in Greenland, which is higher than the global sex ratio. So people are tuning into this episode thinking, you know what, I, I'm seeing a patient with esophageal cancer, I need to uh, learn or refresh my esophageal cancer knowledge and they're just getting some bonus knowledge about Greenland. But now you can drop this in your next MDT when they're talking about, oh, you know, it's really interesting, uh, you know, esophageal cancer and the uh, places where there's a high incidence. And you'll be like, guys, I know everything to know about Greenland. <laughs> I've, done, I've done significant uh, demographic studies on Greenland just for this episode. Be your time to your time to shine, dear listener. I will be silent from now on, Mikey. Ah, uh, thank goodness. Um, so uh, coming back to at long last, coming back to the actual study that we were talking about after a, a very long detour to the frigid north. Uh, so patients were age eighteen to seventy five years old. So unlike a lot of studies that we see, there was an upper age limit. They had to be ECOG performance status of 0 to 1. And interestingly, one of the inclusion criteria that they had to have had a 10% or less uh, loss of weight. Um, so they had to have lost 10% or less of their previous body weight. And I guess that f uh, partially factors into their ability to tolerate the treatment and also likely in, uh, has an impact on their underlying ECOG status. So someone who's lost 20 or 30% of their weight is less likely to be ECOG 0 to 1. It was quite a broad study, given that we've spent the last half an hour talking about the different types and the different places of uh, uh, esophageal cancer, that esophageal cancer can be found. So it included patients... <laughs> in, case, in case you'd forgotten in the last five seconds. So it included patients with both squamous and adenocarcinoma, um, as well as a large cell undifferentiated can cancer of the esophagus or gastroesophageal junction, uh, which probably accounts for a very small percentage of cases and I don't think really has much bearing on the, uh, on the end result. Uh, in terms of the actual tumour, the upper border of the tumour had to be 3 centimetres below 
the upper esophageal sphincter. And the clinical stage had to be, or could be, a T1 to 3 and N0 to 1. So locally advanced, but definitely not metastatic. In terms of the actual treatment, so patients were given carboplatin and paclitaxel, and in terms of the dosing, this was actually a weekly dose, so it's not like the three weekly doses that are much higher that we give in, say, for example, lung cancer. So this is an area under the curve of two for carboplatin as opposed to five with other three weekly regimens, and a paclitaxel dose of 50 milligrams per meter squared. And this was combined with a total radiation dose of 41 grays in 23 doses or fractions. And the comparator arm was just surgery alone. So patients either had upfront surgery or they had this uh, neoadjuvant uh, chemoradiotherapy followed by surgery. The primary endpoint was overall survival and secondary endpoints were progression-free survival, safety and disease recurrence. In terms of the patient demographics, so there was 368 patients in this study. Um, and the median age was 60, as is uh, typical with esophageal cancer. There was a significant male predominance of 75 and 80% in the two groups. The majority of patients were adenocarcinomas with 75% uh, representation. And I guess this likely reflects something that I didn't mention before, which is the usual position or location of uh, adenocarcinomas as compared to squamous cells. Because squamous cells are so associated with smoking, it, they tend to be much higher up in the esophageal tract. So if you have a mid or upper esophageal tumour, you can bet bottom dollar that that will likely be a um, squamous cell cancer. However, because the adenocarcinomas, as we mentioned before, are associated with reflux and, and the uh, cellular changes uh, that are associated with that, uh, they are much more in the distal third of the esophagus. So the majority of patients had T3 primaries and the majority of patients also had nodal involvement as well. So they're not selecting, much like in the FLOT study, they're not selecting the patients that are just going to do well regardless of um, what treatment we throw at them. So in terms of the uh, initial results, so 91% of patients received all of their chemotherapy and 92% of their patients received all their radiotherapy, which, Josh, I think... It, you know, we sometimes talk about how in trials, patients, you know, receive, they're, they're frequently much fitter, and so they're able to get their uh, their treatment in, they're able to tolerate it, and then we try and apply that to the general population, and we see much more patients, a great or greater proportion of patients just falling to pieces. But I think in this case, the percentages that we see, the vast majority of patients being able to get through all of their treatment sort of reflects our clinical practice. Would you agree? I would agree. The other thing is the carboplatin dose is quite low. It's 2AUC. And like head and neck cancers, it's usually used as a sensitizer for the, you know, the tumour itself. I would be interested to see, we're going to get into this, but I have noticed with my esophageal patients, they generally tolerate cross pretty well. I agree to your, your question. I guess the thing is, it's just interesting because my patients who, my, all my head and neck patients who they have, you know, just this plan, they, they just struggle at the end of their treatment. They, a lot of them need hospital admissions. A lot of them get pegs as well. So just tubes into the stomach for sort of parenteral feeding. Um, sorry, enteral feeding, not parenteral feeding. That doesn't make sense. Um, <laughs> 
and yeah it's just it's crazy that you're you're right like with these stats and what i've seen in real life they just seem to tolerate the trim they get some discomfort but overall do pretty well i would say that's anatomical as well you you have a lot of anatomical considerations with head and neck cancer yeah that's true a lot of anatomical considerations in terms of the patients who underwent surgery, again, 94% of patients in the chemo RT group underwent surgery at the end of all this. And there was an R0 resection, so no microscopic disease left over, in 92% of patients receiving chemo RT. And this is compared to 69% in the surgery alone group. 29% of patients had a pathological complete response, which was more common in the squamous cell versus the adenocarcinoma patients. So compared to surgery alone, it's really no contest giving chemoradiotherapy neoadjuvantly uh, at the time of surgery gives you much, m- much better outcomes. Mikey, are you going to go into the rationale why squamous response better than adeno in the uh, chemotherapy cohort? The rationale... That I am not really sure about, Josh. Maybe you can do some Googling, just uh, as as you've done with your Greenland factoids. I just thought it's more responsive to chemotherapy, squamous cell carcinomas generally, but they also recur more. Oh, when you said rationale, I thought you were going to go into the, the cellular level and take us on a magical journey down the microscope. Well, the cellular level is that it's something to do with the mitotic cycle and you know the uh, g1 phase all that stuff i'm definitely editing this out so yeah no you're absolutely right um so squamous cells in general if left untreated do much worse than adenocarcinomas and we'll see this in sort of the overall survival rates where we compare the chemo radiotherapy group to the surgery group and if you compare um the control groups in the squamous and the adenocarcinoma um, the squamous cells do worse, but they do respond better to treatment. And this is something that we'll see next week, plug, in our metastatic uh, um, episode where the squamous cells do tend to do better with chemo and immunotherapy. So tune in for that one. So in terms of the side effects at the time of actual treatment administration, they are very much to be expected, anorexia, alopecia, Bowel um, dysmotility, constipation, diarrhea, fatigue, nausea, cytopenias, uh, particularly leukopenia, uh, which was the most common grade three to four side effect. So I know we've sort of danced around this a little bit, but in terms of the um, survival, because we have five-year overall survival data for this now, if you'll remember the uh, likelihood of surviving uh, five years sort of statistically with esophageal cancer is about 23%. In this study, the five-year overall survival with um, the cross-neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy was 47% compared to 33% in the control arm. Now, the numbers are higher than the average probably for multitude of factors. This is a population of fit patients, but it's also a population of fit patients with early cancer as opposed to including patients with later disease. Um, the median overall survival was 48 months versus 24 months in the surgery alone arm. In the squamous cell group, this is what I was mentioning before, in the neoadjuvant chemorads arm, the median overall survival was 81 months compared to 21 months with a hazard ratio of 0.48. In the adeno group, it was a little bit more modest, 34 months versus 27 months with a hazard ratio of 0.73. And progression-free survival followed a very similar pattern. 
Yes, we can say that cross is better than surgery alone, but if you actually look at the numbers for a uh, early cancer cohort, they're, they're not really inspiring. So this is still a highly deadly, highly uh, recurrent disease, even after you've put someone through neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy and then a major surgery, there's still a very, very high risk of it coming back. It's quite scary, I think, where we have these conversations, like this is the best treatment we have and we know that half of our patients, even with the gold standard treatment, will be back to see us within five years to talk about next line of therapy. Absolutely. And it's such a big thing with our lung cancer patients. You know, I think, Josh, you mentioned in a previous episode that early stage lung cancer, there is a greater than 50% chance of recurrence, even with complete surgical resection or complete response to chemo rads. It's not something that is as prevalent in our minds, much less the minds of the public with um, esophageal cancer, but it is no less accurate. You're right, it's no less accurate. And I think, unfortunately, there are the cancers that lag a little bit with education and knowledge and just general societal influence to try and get better treatments. So gastric and esophageal cancer, the two of those. In conclusion for the CROSS study, so it does significantly improve outcomes and it's well tolerated overall, so it's a good treatment. I don't think that can be debated. Uh, as I mentioned before, there is some emerging evidence that the uh, neoadjuvant or perioperative FLOT regimen that Josh described can also be used in esophageal cancer. There are only small comparative trials uh, I believe, that are looking, actually comparing these two head-to-head. -head. Um, and so the jury is still out on that one. And I guess it will come down to patient selection. You look at the chemo regimen, you look at the patient fitness, and you determine what they are more likely to tolerate. The other question is, can it be used for definitive treatment? Now, on our guidelines from the EVIQ database, which I recommend to everybody um, who's starting out at oncology, even overseas, to have a look at because they're very, very good for providing patient information. It is listed as a potential for definitive treatment. There is some low-grade evidence of this with a slightly higher radiotherapy dose, and it is listed in the American NCCN guidelines, but not in the ESMO guidelines. So if you've got a patient that is absolutely not going to tolerate an Ivaluus esophagectomy, this is an option, but the standard of care still in many places is the combination of cisplatin 5-FU, which has been the standard of care since 1995. So it will depend on your patient selection, but also your local guidelines as well. And for those who want to know the website for EverQ, it is www eviq.org.au yeah i i think i um i think josh will agree with me on this one that i uh give eviq information to pretty much every new patient i see i do i do too there there is some for other languages although it's probably not as widespread as it should be the other question i guess that this study will also raise is you have a patient you put them through the neoadjuvant treatment and then what do you do afterwards do you give them adjuvant chemotherapy um, or is there something else? Now, there is a study for this that I will mention only very briefly, which was the Checkmate 577 study, which looked at patients who had a non-pathological complete response post-neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy who were randomised to receive either nivolumab or a placebo. Um, and in very, very brief terms, the nivolumab doubled the disease-free survival from... Uh, post-resection from 22 months 
uh, from 11 months to 22 months. Majority of patients were adenocarcinoma, but again, we see this pattern of there being a more significant benefit with squamous cell carcinoma. And interestingly, the majority were pdl one negative, so maybe there's not really an, a, an association with benefit. Maybe we don't know the rationale. That's the other <laughs> thing, right? You know, if, if pdl one's working, or, you know, pdl one is working in a pdl one negative patient and there's still benefit, there's something that we don't know. Exactly, and, you know, the poster child for that is melanoma. We don't routinely check pdl one in melanoma just because no matter what the pdl one expression is, it's going to work. So, um, Josh, would you like to, would you like to uh, take us out on uh, for this episode? Because uh, that's all really I have to say about cross. Amazing! I can't believe we've crossed this point already in our episode, guys. It's the last time. I please, promise. please finish the episode so we don't have to have another abysmal uh, cross pun. <laughs> Sounds good. So, in a very brief summary, we have talked about FLOT when it comes to gastric and GOJ cancers in the perioperative space. So that's four cycles every two weeks before definitive surgery. You would restart FLOT four to 10 weeks after the definitive surgery. That shows improved overall survival and improved progression-free survival versus the standard of care, which is ECX. With Michael's cross, and you know he's cross at me for mentioning cross so many crossing times, um, that too was primarily esophageal cancers, but also had some GOJ cancers. And you saw that there was better tolerability. Most people managed to complete their perioperative treatment and there were better outcomes. But both studies have highlighted the need for better treatments because a lot of patients, despite having good pathological response, will recur. To cross this off our list... <laughs> Sorry, Mikey. I know you're like, why did you give this to me? But in summary, stay tuned for next week when we talk about how do you manage metastatic gastric and esophageal cancer, where we talk about immunotherapy when it comes to the esophageal and the gastric cohort. And we also talk about HER2 therapy and the upcoming and muchly anticipated Destiny Gastric 04. Stay tuned. And we promise there will not be a single cross pun. There will not be a single Josh is banned either. Josh is banned from cross puns for the rest of time. Okay. Don't worry, there's only one cross across the study, so we're fine. See you next week, guys. Bye bye.